I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about Royal Melbourne with Michael Clayton. This is the slightly delayed fourth episode of our Great Courses series from this past December. These have basically been deep dives into some of the world's best and most influential golf courses. We started with St. Andrews, of course, then went to National Golf Links and Sunningdale, And I can't think of a better way to wrap up this initial run of the Great Courses episodes than heading to the Australian Sandbelt and talking about what Alistair McKenzie accomplished there. The West Course at Royal Melbourne was really McKenzie's first outrageously great design. He had not yet built Cypress Point or Augusta National. He had done some really amazing stuff in Great Britain. I don't want to downplay that. But the courses that you really know McKenzie for now had not yet been produced when he got the Royal Melbourne job. So Royal Melbourne was a big step forward for McKenzie's career, and it was also a big step forward for Australian golf. It's tough to overstate the impact that Royal Melbourne, both McKenzie's West Course and Alex Russell's later East Course, had on the game in Australia. And there's no better person to talk about all of this than Michael Clayton. Mike is a former tour pro, a current golf architect, and one of the leading voices in the game, both in Australia and internationally. He's been on our podcast several times before, and I'm super excited to have him back to discuss a topic that is so very much in his wheelhouse. Before we get to that, though, let's talk a little bit about our sponsor for this episode, Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. They have extensively trained master fitters who provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process, and they have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. This is truly a brand-agnostic fitting. There is no motive to promote one brand over another. Master fitters at Club Champion simply fit you into what works best for you. Club Champion's fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22-yard increases off the tee and an average of 10-yard improvements in dispersion. So I've gone through Club Champion fittings myself, and I've gotten equipment that really works for me, and I've also gotten a lot of knowledge from these fittings, right? I think I went into my club champion fittings with a certain idea of what I should be playing from driver through putter, like what suited me the best. But those senses were kind of based on trial and error and just, you know, unreliable experience. Once I went into club champion and and actually saw the data, I got a different idea about what kind of equipment suited me best. And that has been enormously helpful ever since my fitting. So for fried egg listeners, this is the deal that club champion is offering right now. 
you can use the code FRIEDEGG to get 50% off the cost of your fitting with the purchase of a club. So go to clubchampion.com and book your fitting today. Again, that's code FRIEDEGG, all one word. All right, let's get to me and Mike Clayton talking about Royal Melbourne. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, Daryl. It'll be fun. We're down at Bamboogle, so it's a, kind of a treat to be down here for a couple of days. This will be fun. Out in, out in Tasmania, just having fun. Yep, just hanging out, playing golf. And yeah, so we, um, I, I'm playing down with Sue O. We're down here. So we started off the year. We played Royal Melbourne on New Year's Day and then um, Lost Farm the next day, then Bamboogle yesterday. So not the, not the worst way to start the year off. Three pretty nice courses. There are versions of your life that definitely could have gone worse. Yep, there are. <laughs> All right, so we're we're talking about uh, Royal Melbourne today, just kind of going in depth on that golf course, which which you know so much about and have talked about quite a bit before. Um, and so we're really gonna gonna dig into this specific course and its history. Um, I'm curious though, what was your first exposure to Royal Melbourne? When did you first see the course and play the course? I first saw it. Uh, I think at the World Cup in 1972, which was they had they hadn't had, they hadn't had a tournament for a long time. They didn't. They played the Australian Open on the East Course in 1963, which I obviously didn't see. And then so and they didn't play another tournament until the World Cup. So we went and watched that, and it was fearsomely Royal Melbourne. It was famous, hard and fast, and the scores were they they rained out the first day, 54 holes, I think. And the scoring was really high. I'm, I'm a t- Tom Weisskopf. I saw Tom Weisskopf years later, and he he told me that he said six green. It was the only green I ever four putted and tried on every putt. So it was it was <laughs> com- you know it was brutally hard and fast. The scores were high. The Taiwanese won. Um, Shane Nan and uh, Mr. Lou won, which was surprising because Asians always sort of struggled at Royal Melbourne because it was so foreign. The type of golf there was so foreign to what they were used to. The greens were so much harder and faster, and so so. And then I first played it in 1974. We the, the big kind of interclub golf is called pennant golf in Melbourne. Everyone grows up playing pennant. And I played there in 1974, the first time I played it. And you know, when you were younger, aside from that that World Cup, were there any other tournaments that you saw there that were particularly memorable to you? Well, I started playing a lot then after that. They played the, there was a thing called the Chrysler Classic in 1974, which uh, Bob Shearer won by seven shots. He won by shot 65 the first day. It was a par 71 then. They played the fourth west as a par four off the what's now the women's tee. Well, not the women's tee, but the front four tee. He won by, he shot 65 the first day, shot one over for the week and won by seven. So you can imagine what the, greens were like that that was back when the tour had no control over how the golf course was set up so the famous superintendent there claude crockford had never seen a green that was too hard or too fast so trevino played trevino shot 66 in the third round and shot 291 or 293 and he said famously take a picture of me going out the gate because you'll never see me coming back into this place again it was um, it was crazy hard and fast. So they and they had tournaments there for, you know, f- that they played there the next three years in that event. Then they didn't play anything in '77. 
Then they had the PGA for five years, the Australian PGA, which is a great event at Royal Melbourne. Seve played every year, and it was. And then, and then they that sort of, and then they played a bunch of Australian Opens there. So we played a lot there over the years. So you saw Seve play Royal Melbourne quite a bit. I was I was going to caddy for him. I was I had a university exam on the Wednesday, so I couldn't caddy, which was just. I hated that. So I, I finished up watching him play. It was a, a friend of mine called Jimmy Carter. Was a really good. Uh, he was a good amateur player in Melbourne, and he was Ed Barner's agent in Australia, and he'd organised for me to caddy for him. So that was that was annoying because I should have just skipped the exam. <laughs> but um, he finished third that week. But it was a perfect course for him because he had space to play. The fairways were wide, and he hit those beautiful high soft irons from the bad angles and kind of stopped the ball. And his short game was genius and. So it was a perfect course for him, really. That's what I was thinking, that Royal Melbourne would really bring out some of the aspects of Seve's game that were unique. Well, I was, yeah, yeah, he was the only guy who ever won at St Andrews and Augusta and Royal Melbourne. And you know, Jack would have won at Royal Melbourne if he'd played there. And Tiger obviously would have won there if he'd played there. But Seve was the only guy who did. And, uh, you know, Augusta was the same. He had space and room to play and he had the stuff around the greens was genius and it was just, they were perfect courses for him really maybe next time Royal melbourne holds a big stroke play tournament and i don't know if it plans to maybe zach johnson should <laughs> should go play oh, yeah. to try to try to get the trifecta <laughs> yeah he should yeah well um yeah it looks i mean who knows what the deal the australian open the, the golf australia's deal with the australian open and the new south wales government finished this year, government being sort of the major sponsor of golf in Australia. So people are assuming it's going to go back to Melbourne. And it's really got to be a 36-hole venue because it's a, it's a mixed event with men and women. So there are only you can only play at Royal Melbourne and Peninsula, really, in Melbourne. Right. So it'll be one or the other, most likely, but who knows, really. Well, let's hope. That would be great. Um, <laughs> the uh, That tournament has been in, in the Sydney area for a while, I believe, and uh, it would be yeah. cool to see it get back to the sand belt. Um, so uh, let's let's go back into uh, a, a little bit of deeper uh, history. Before Alistair McKenzie arrived in Australia and, and did what he did, you know, Royal Melbourne was yeah. the, the West Course was a big part of what he did when when he came and visited. But before that visit in 1926, could you just give me a general picture of what Australian golf architecture? was like well i assume it wasn't very good it was all, all the famous clubs on the sand belt except for woodlands were somewhere else like they were much closer to the city there, there's not there's not much good land for golf in melbourne outside of the sand belt and they're all much closer to the city and i and i assume pretty rudimentary courses so rural melbourne and metropolitan were one club about two miles from where I live, like, you know, right in the middle of, not in the middle of the city, but not far out. And um, half the half the membership went down to Sandringham, which was a, at the time, I guess, a long way away. You know, most, most people, I assume, didn't have cars. And it was, so so all the Sandbelt clubs that moved, moved, apart from Kingston Heath, moved to bits of land near train stations so people could get there. So half of them, Half half of the club went to Royal Melbourne. The other half stayed behind because it was too far to go. And and then a few years later, went and started Metropolitan. So they went down to Sandringham and did a golf course in the teens, probably you know nineteen 
13 or something around then, I don't know, sort of just sort of just, just before the First World War. And it was sort of known as the Sandringham Links and and they so it was part of the land they currently used and I and I think it went out further to the kind of north and west, which was where the Sandringham public course is now. So that was what they had. And and when Mackenzie came down, he completely reimagined the whole thing and um you know, basically built them a new golf course. Yeah, and, and you know uh, all the clubs that you know, make up what's down the sand belt sort of followed that lead and moved. Do you know, you know they figured out that well this is a great land for golf, so they all moved down there and built their courses. And you know Kingston Heath was already there, so Mackenzie bunkered that and redid the fifteenth hole. But you know Dan Suter was 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 responsible for the routing there. But you know so. Mick Morgan was the famous greenkeeper who built all the work, and Alec Russell was there, Mackenzie's Australian partner. So he did the East Course, and so just over a period of you know a decade and a half, probably the whole thing just came out of the ground, and there were you know six or eight great courses there. Why was it that Mackenzie went to Australia? Well, Royal Melbourne wanted their course redesigned, and they wanted Harry Cole to do it, and. Peter Thompson always said that Royal Melbourne would have been much different if Cole had come out because Mackenzie built these big flashy bunkers that Thompson was never a fan of, really. He, he liked Colt's sort of smaller, perhaps more understated work. So Colt couldn't come and suggested they hire Mackenzie. So he came out and Royal Melbourne sort of paid for it by hiring him out to the other clubs. And, you know, so, so he was advising all the other clubs. And he went around the country, he went to Royal Queensland, he went to Royal Adelaide, he went to Sydney, to Royal Sydney and Australian and advised them on their golf courses. And I think at Royal Sydney, he filled in 100 bunkers. And But the way he thought about golf was what really formed golf here. You know, he'd written the book you know, six years earlier, probably, you know, 1920. So Russell and Morgan had obviously read the book and people were reading his book. And so they understood you know, his basic philosophy about the way golf should be played or the way he thought it should be played. and So they kind of grasped that and listened to what he was saying and went and built it. But he was only here for three months. So, you know, he, he didn't, it wasn't like he was on the ground for, for a year building Royal Melbourne. He was, he, he'd come and gone in no time, really. Right. Yeah, he, he arrived in October or something like that and, and left a, around New Year's. Uh, and so it was it was a very productive, uh, whatever it was, 10, 10 weeks or, or so yeah. that, that he spent in Australia. The, the book you mentioned uh, was Golf Architecture, yeah. the, the short book that he published yeah. in 1920. And then Spirit of St. Andrews kind of takes golf architecture and expands upon it. Yeah. Um, but that was the book that he was distributing at the time. And my understanding is that, you know, I heard this story from, I think Neil Crafter that when, when he came to Australia, he, he hadn't built a lot of the courses that we now associate with him, right? Because he hadn't really been to America that much yet. This was 1926. He designed Cypress point, built Cypress point later, built Augusta national later, so he he had done most of his work in the UK, yeah. but he had he had written this book. Obviously, had a great pedigree, had a relationship with the RNA, and and so he came to Australia and he was this authority on golf architecture. He had this book. They were publishing excerpts in newspapers, and he was shaping the discussion around golf architecture. And that strikes me just as so gutsy on Mackenzie's part that he he really hadn't built his great courses yet, but here he came to an entirely new continent and he is the authority on on golf architecture 
Well, he was, but I've seen letters that back when people used to write indignant letters to newspapers about golf. They don't even write about golf in newspapers. They don't have people write letters about golf. But members at Royal Adelaide going crazy about this Scottish guy is destroying our golf course. And, and, and so they didn't really – he had a plan for the last four holes that was never implemented. He, you know, he had a bunch of stuff that they just didn't do at Royal Adelaide. But, of course, the hole he did, I mean, one of the main holes he did was the, the third hole, which is the best hole in the course. And, you know, was, um, you know they're, they're incredibly proud of the third hole that Royal Adelaide because – uh, you know, Mackenzie built it, but at the time they were, you know, the members were being typical members were going nuts because this Scottish guy was digging up the golf course. But yeah, yeah, Royal Melbourne gave him a free hit and let him do what he wanted to do, and he he did an amazing job. But you know, at the time, I don't, you know, it wasn't all roses for him. But um, you know, Royal Melbourne was smart enough to give him his head and let him do it and of course you know Tom Doug told me once he said there weren't any decent courses before he got there and there weren't too many built after he left that were any good either and it was kind of true you know, Russell did Yarra Yarra and Lake Karen up and and the depression came and then the war so that sort of stopped everything and then that generation of architect was gone really you know, Tom Simpson lived into the 60s I think but you know they all died and sort of Trent Jones and Dick Wilson took over American architecture. There was no one in Australia. Really. Vern Morecambe, Mick Morecambe's son, did a bunch of courses in the in country of uh, Victoria. Eric Appley did work in Sydney, but, you know, it was a, the 50s was a really, 50s and 60s were a really stagnant period for golf in Australia in terms of building golf courses. So, certainly any, any that were any good. Well, the, the timeline in Australia for the, what you might call the golden age of golf architecture, was really tight, <laughs> you know, it, it, in in Great Britain, uh, you know, or in, at least in England, the timeline was sort of like 1900 to the outbreak of World War One. In America, the timeline was kind of like National Golf Links to the Depression, yeah. so about 20 years. In Australia, Mackenzie arrived in 1926, and and basically there weren't that many years left until the Depression. Yeah, it seemed like everything got done in four or five years. It was just this, right? You know, Commonwealth Yarra Yarra was early thirties. Metro uh, Victoria uh, Woodlands was nineteen thirteen. That was that early actually. Uh, Woodlands is really underrated, really good. Um, Royal Melbourne Peninsula was that was much later. Huntingdale was later. I think that was in the forties or fifties, forties maybe, but. Um, yeah, there was that mad rush of sort of three or four or five years after Mackenzie came here where everything got done, really. Yeah. His his influence is uh, the, the, the immediacy and the power of his of his influence during this trip is, is really interesting to me. I think it's one of the one of the most interesting historical questions there is about golf architecture is how, how exactly this was done. But but to get more specific about uh, Royal Melbourne, yeah. we've talked about what generally he did, right? Royal Melbourne kind of like paid part of his fee and then paid the rest of his fee by hiring him out to these yeah. other clubs and in so doing like improved an awful lot of golf in, in Australia. But of course, his main purpose for visiting was to lay out that uh, what we now know as the West course at Royal Melbourne. Yeah. Um, one of the big things he did, and you've you've alluded to this a couple of times, was to assemble a team or at least to recruit a couple of like-minded individuals who could carry out his vision. Um, so who who were the key people involved in actually carrying out Mackenzie's design at Royal Melbourne and, and what were their roles? 
Well, Mick Morgan was the greenkeeper, so he built everything, I assume, he, or, or certainly was in charge of the crew that was building the stuff for the horse and scoop. They were digging out the bunkers and making the contours around the greens and building the greens. And, and Alec Russell, who was you know, a wealthy grazier, who was an Australian Open champion, great player, Royal Melbourne member, and he he was Mackenzie's Australian partner, really. So he uh, he um you know as Mackenzie seemed to do when he ran went around the you know Robert Hunter in California and different people who he partnered with. So Russell was that guy in Australia, and after, so after he left, Russell did Yarra Yarra and Lake Karen up and Paraparam in New Zealand, Riversdale here. So he was a he was he was a great designer in his own right, really. And and the East Course at Royal Melbourne. And the East Course at Royal, of course, yeah, and the East Course, yeah. So um, he was clearly a really talented architect. But you know, then the Depression came and nothing happened. Really. You know, you know, so architecture in Australia was a non-existent profession pretty much for a long time after that until really Peter Thompson took it up. Thompson teamed up with Mike Woolbridge in the early 70s probably and he was the, he was the main guy here for a long time. Now, uh, when it came to actually building Mackenzie's course at, at Royal Melbourne, how much of it did he actually see get completed, given that he was off to New Zealand and, and then the rest of the world pretty quickly? Probably not a lot. I, I, think, he, I think he built the 15th hole at Kingston Heath while he was here, or, or that was built when he was here. That was a 15 at Kingston Heath was at the famous par three. There was a short par four over the hill that Dan Suter had routed that he described it as a blot on the golf course, so he he built the fifth, the famous part three when he was there. But I mean, Neil Craft has got a, you know that extensive timeline of what went on. But I mean, how much can you do in three months? You can't do that much, you know. So with most of his courses, he didn't see see much of them when they were finished. I mean, Augusta, you know, he died before Augusta was barely open, and you know, he certainly didn't ever live to see the Masters or. And he, went, and, he, and he went to America. I think he was he going to Cypress Point or Crystal Downs? Probably Cypress Point after he left Australia. Yeah, he, he had uh, he I believe had the Cypress Point connection and at the very least the Meadow Club connection in California. Yeah. But he, yeah, he was he was off to California. Yeah. So and he went through Auckland and laid out Titarangi, which is a terrific course in Auckland. And he said from the photos they sent me, it looked like it turned out quite well. So he clearly never. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's right. Well, he never saw it, but you know, he, he routed yeah. it, and, and and the routing was genius. And this was not Melbourne sand. This was clay in Auckland. Yeah, I mean that, that's the thing that bears repeating, right? Is that he never went back. Yeah, this was his only time. This was it. <laughs> visiting there. So it's kind of sad in a way that he never saw the golf course or never understood the adulation that it. You know the, the esteem and the adulation that that, that people hold it in, and um, you know that, that's such an important part of golf in Australia. You never had any idea how significant it was going to be, mm. and and I you know, I think he wrote that he just assumed that the profession would get better and better, and you know it would continue to evolve, and people would build better and better courses. And you know, as it turned out, that wasn't exactly what happened, really. Well, so when when it comes to the question of credit. Who is the architect of the West Course at Royal Melbourne? You know, there are some people who think that that Russell doesn't get enough credit, that, that Morecambe doesn't get mentioned enough. 
and uh, feel that, you know, McKenzie was the designer, but, but he didn't really build it. H- how do you think through that question of credit yourself? Do you think it's, is it proper to call it a McKenzie course or, or do we need to call it a McKenzie and Russell course? I don't know, really. I mean, I think the concept was all his. You know, the concept of the way he, you know, if he'd thought that golf should have been played, you know, was played down narrow fairways bordered by high grass, that's what it would have been. So, but it wasn't, so because he hated that sort of golf. So the concept of the way the way the golf would be there was, I assume, mostly his. So, and the routing was his, or the rerouting. So if it's your concept and your routing, then you get a lot of the credit. But as Bill Kerr always says, you know, not just one guy who ever builds a golf course. You know, there's a, there are a team of people who are critical to what happens. And, I'm, you know, and without being there, it's hard to know. But you assume that, that that was obviously the case at Royal Melbourne when they must have sat down at night and had dinner together and discussed what they were doing. And, you know, clearly Morecambe, you know, he, he enjoyed the way, you know, he wrote glowingly about Morecambe's talent as a shaper. So, you know, he obviously was comfortable with him doing it and gave him a free hand and it was you, know, you assume they like i said you assume they sat down every night and spoke about what they were doing and went for lunch breaks and had a sandwich and what do you think about the 17th green well i think it should be higher here and lower there and you know do this with the bunker and make the shots on the right more difficult and so the concept was his i think and it seems like one argument in favor of of making sure that McKenzie gets a lot of credit for for what he did in Australia is that it seems like pretty much everything he touched turned to gold, right? That a lot of their great courses have one thing in common, and and that is that uh, Alistair McKenzie had some role in yeah. in uh, creating them. Yeah, and and it was again, it was the concept and the look, and I don't really know what happened to Victoria, but you you, know, you look at that golf course and the bunker, I mean, it's, it's literally right across the street. You can hit a wedge from the, you hit a wedge from the second tee at Royal Melbourne, over the road onto the twelfth green in Victoria. It's how close they are. So it's, and, and the bunkers look the same. The greens are similar. The concepts the same. The property is not quite as big, but so it's not quite as wide. But you know, it's, the, the the golf is obviously very related. So it's you know, it's just that influence of the, of the way he thought golf should be. That was critical to golf in Australia. And, I, you know, it's, it's unfair, really, but and I've never played enough in South Africa, but I, I suspect that if it wasn't for McKenzie, we'd have finished up with golf like South Africa has, which is nothing in the world top 10 and nothing sort of super amazing. And that's what we would have had if he hadn't come here, I think. I mean, you know, Russell might have had more of an influence. Well, he probably would have, but, but you know, I'm sure... Well, I'm not sure. You can't ever be sure about this stuff. But but if, if you interview Alec Russell now, he would, I assume, say that well, Mackenzie was a huge influence on the way he thought about golf, and and, and I and I guess it went back to the book. He obviously read the book, you know, golf architecture, right. and you know, f- you know, from that he gleaned what Mackenzie's ideas were about how golf should be played. And, but yeah. you can't understate the influence of just the concept of golf. Uh, you know, he, he brought what I think is the correct or, or the, you know the, the the concept of the best golf in the world he bought it here and then he took it to augusta and did the same thing really and and he got that from the old course because he understood the old course that was where it all came from he understood that you know shots from one part of the hole were completely different from shots from the other part of the hole and that was an important part of golf and if it was narrow you couldn't do that you needed width to create that 
And the, the, the great part about playing Royal Melbourne is you, you get much different shots depending on which part of the hole you're on. Mackenzie had a way of, of activating people, it, it seems like. Uh, it, it, you know, he did this with, with Russell in Australia. An example I love is his relationship with Perry Maxwell, where Maxwell was a talented, yeah. thoughtful golf architect before his relationship with Alistair McKenzie. But after he worked with McKenzie, Maxwell just reached an entirely different level yeah. and built courses that were truly world-class. And so there's something about McKenzie's influence, his way of interacting with people and, and recruiting people and, and, and helping to educate them is probably not the right word, but something like that. Um, and then afterwards, they're they're just completely different, <laughs> um, and so it's a it's a remarkable thing. Yeah, well, you know, you don't know what you don't know really until someone points it out. And I played Crystal Downs. Well, I was going to say this year, last year, and that's a an amazing course they did up in Michigan. It's a beautiful course. Yep. Yeah, Perry Maxwell built that course. Yeah. Right? That, or yeah, was was heavily involved in the construction. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, just it, and and I think. You could argue the same thing happened with Bill Core, really. I mean, Bill Core and Sandhills was the was the start of the this era, and of course, you know, we're living in it. So, how do we really know how people are going to judge it in a hundred years? But I think it'll be judged incredibly kindly. I, I think, you know, I was I was I played with Richard Satley yesterday, the owner at Bamboo. We played the little par three course that Bill designed, but of course, it was COVID, so Bill never was here. I mean, he never came out. You know, he was doing it on Zoom with a guy called John Hawker, who was building it. So, you know, there's a classic example of you know the 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 the, the Bill Core design Boogle Runner, Van Boogle, the 14 hole par three course. He never saw it built. Well, well, he did. He, he saw it this year or last year finished, but he was never here when it was being built. But you know, I think that Richard and I were talking about. I, I think he'll go down as being arguably the, the best and most important architect ever. When people look back in 100 years at the, the, the courses that Bill and Ben have done, they go, well, those guys are incredibly great at what they did. Mm -hmm. And and their tree is going to be really strong too, right? The, all the people they yeah, worked with influenced yeah. and and activated, you know, in the way that Mackenzie activated yeah. people. Yeah, um, yeah it is, it's a really good good comparison, I think. Um, all right, well, let, let's get a little more specific about, about – the West course at Royal Melbourne itself. I also want to talk about the East course too, because it gets, it gets uh, ignored uh, to a degree, but the West course is obviously very spectacular. Um, when it comes to the land at Royal Melbourne, now I, I've just, I've, I've never been to Australia. Uh, I'll, I'll admit that I'm talking about all these courses yeah. in the series that I, that I haven't been to, but um, which is why I want to find out more about them, but I've only seen it on TV, right? Seen yeah. it in the president's cup and gotten a general feel for it. Seen photographs of it, obviously, yeah read a lot about it but one thing that you have a really hard time getting a sense of when you haven't been to a course is what the land is like right what is special about the piece of land and so when it when it comes to royal melbourne's land what is that special thing that you can only see when you're there well it's all sand which obviously helps and it's you know the first hole is a flat wide open par four. Second hole's quite flat wide open short par five with a cool hollow that goes out in front of the green to make the running shot into the green interesting. Three goes up and over a little, you know, a little kind of rise. And then you get to the fourth tee and there's a massive hill with a blind shot up over a big dune. So it's the first 
bit of significant undulation you come to on the golf course, and it's a massive dune that you drive with bunkers in the hill, and you drive over that, and it sort of goes down across the other side, and the hole turns around to the right, goes down a hill. It's a spectacular hole. And then that kind of shot, that that blind drive up and over the hill, which you know is not, not the ideal shot. You've, you've got to hit a great drive, but it's an unusual shot. Opens up the, the amazing second shot. And, and what that broke the back of, of the routing, was that got him to the fifth and the sixth. So the fifth's a beautiful par three across the valley. Then you go to a high tee and play way down into the right on you know, the sixth hole, which is the famous par four that was in the World Atlas of Golf, best 18 holes in the world. So, so you know, that's the, that's the big significant undulation on the whole golf course. And he used it amazingly and, and opened it up by building this blind tee shot up, up over a big dune. And then... They abandoned the whole he built, the par three, the seven, in the 40s, I think. And Ivo Witten, who was another Australian Open champion, built the what's now the seventh hole, which is a cool uphill par three. Then there are two holes that aren't on the composite course, eight and nine. Uh, sort of nine's a beautiful hole. You know, it's kind of a plunging drive, you know, down at the bottom of a the valley, then back up to the green with a short iron. And then ten's the great short par four. Again, you play across a deep, deep valley up onto a, you know, the dune on the opposite side of the valley and then pitch onto the green. And um, 11 goes down and up and around again. Great par four. So now there's, every hole has got significant undulation on it. Um, 12's, a, 12's a green. It's a not as, you know, it's a blind drive up and over a hill again, but not a big hill. And it's to a green that, um, I think Crockford moved from Mackenzie's Green. Mackenzie's Green was further to the right, and they they, they they moved it probably 40 yards to the left and created this long second shot over a really cool heathland to the green. And then you go over the road. You play 13, 14, 15, 16, which aren't on the composite course, and they're pretty much flat again. There's a really cool little short path three that's difficult because um, it's got this cut. Ridge across the middle of the green, and the greens are so hard there that if you land on the sort of this ridge in the middle, of the, if you land on the downslope, because all the ball's always going to almost always goes over the back of the green. It's just a really innocuous looking sort of 140 yard hole that's actually really difficult. 14's a flat sort of dog leg right, good par four. 15's a 15's got that cross hazard across the fairway at about 420 yards off the tee. It was on the original course, and he said, apocryphally said, I'm going to leave this ridge across, these ridges across the fairway as an example of how bad golf architecture used to be. So there's this thing just in a dead straight line right across the middle of the fairway. It's covered in kind of heathy rough. It looks actually pretty cool, but so the story is that, you know, he left it there as an example of, as I said, how bad architecture used to be. Right, it's sort of the the Victorian style or yeah. or whatever. Um, but but you think but you think he probably didn't say that, right? You're saying no, it's apocryphal. I think he probably did. I think he probably. You, did. you think he probably did? Yeah, okay. He probably did. Yeah. <laughs> he, he actually correct. left a feature on the golf course yeah, that he didn't yeah, like yeah. Uh, as a. Yeah. Oh, that kind of sounds like him. Actually, yeah. that, that's like uh, that's Mackenzie in a yeah. nutshell, right there. And then sixteen's the best long path. There aren't many long path threes in Australia. You know, most of the great ones, almost all the great ones, are between a hundred and. 40 and 180 yards because they're great because you know they, they built these kind of famous sandbelt bunkers and greens and and they made them tight so you couldn't really make them 
220 yards because they were going to be so difficult. It's different from the London Heathlands. And all the great par threes on the Heathlands play across amazingly interesting, dramatic bits of land. But in, in Australia, they were the apart from parts of Royal Melbourne and parts of Victoria, it's, it's largely flat. So they had to build these really, they built these great holes on land that gave them nothing really. And then you go, so so it's, but it's got a tiny green, it's a really hard, difficult, hard hole, small green, really brilliantly bunkered. It'd be a great short par four, the, the, the way the bunker works. If they could ever put, the, I keep saying, you need to chop these trees down behind the tee and put a tee back up against the Sandringham public golf course boundary fence and play it at 240 or 50 yards, it'd still be a par three, but it'd be a great two-shot hole for most people. And then um, then you go back across the road and 17 is arguably the best hole in the course. You know, it's, a, it's a flattish drive. And then you go down down the hill and across the valley with a second shot back to a green on the opposite side of the valley. So, so, so there are lots of shots that go across these valleys. You, know, you put the green on the opposite side of the valleys and you, and you play across them. And then 18 is another blind drive up and over a hill into a you know a big bunker that's not really in play but sort of embedded into the face of the hill. So you go up and over that, and then it kind of sweeps down into the left, and you with a green on the far right corner of the hole. So there's so we use the undulations brilliantly, but you know it's, it's big, bold, dramatic sort of golf, and and the bunkers. Everyone's seen the pictures of the bunkers there, which look great and big greens and. So it's, you know, so so it was a it's a perfect piece of land for golf. And there was, apart from the teacher up the fourth, there was no sort of what he would describe as hill climbing, you know. Mm. But he but he used the dunes and the, and and the natural undulations incredibly well. And you assume that they didn't move much dirt. They weren't. It wasn't like they dramatically changed the land in in any way. I mean, you know, we're doing the course at Seven Mile Beach now in Hobart and. When when we took the trees off, the land was on a lot of holes was completely unplayable for golf. It's it's only that we've got a bulldozer that you can actually bulldoze it into some sort of form where golf's playable. And the trick is to make it look like you haven't done that. But you assume that the land of Royal Melbourne was completely playable once the vegetation had come off, and it was it was a the the property was owned by a guy who trained horses on it. It was a big kind of so, so it was. I don't think it was heavily treed. You know, there wasn't much clearing that went on. It was just covered in the, you know, the natural heathland of the area. So it was, you know, that was a matter of mowing that down and planting the grass. But it was a, so it was a perfect piece of land for golf. And of course, it didn't. It was it was sand, so it didn't need extensive drainage. And you know, they brilliantly used the surface drainage to get the water off the greens and not having it, you know, ripping down into the bunkers and wrecking the bunkers and. So all that stuff they got right, and you know, so so it was a it was a dream site for golf. You know, much much probably probably much easier than Augusta, which was clay and much much sure. hillier, you know, much hillier and and very yeah, extremely yeah. hilly, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, uh, intractable in in some parts, but the routing kind of makes it makes yeah. it work. Um, yeah, another thing, something that strikes me about your description there of of how the course unfolds over the land is that the the pacing is is just right with the the flatter parts of the property as opposed to the more dramatic parts of the property right you start on some subtler land yeah. and then in the middle of the back nine you get some subtler land yeah but yeah. there are these uh, of course all around that you have these holes going around big landforms yeah. Yeah. and and so there's there's a pacing to it it's not like one nine 
has all the cool no, right. landforms and yeah. the other nine doesn't. Which is sort of what happens right across the street of Victoria. The first sort of seven holes of Victoria are relatively flat, or the first eight really, and nine's got some great undulation. And then the back nine's all the great undulations on the back nine. So, you know, it's not like the front nine of Victoria's, it's not in, 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 in any way a bad nine, you know, it's, it's really good. But the back nine's better cause, because it's got all the great undulation on it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of cool. But but you get you know, five five or six or ten miles up the road at Metropolitan where I play in Huntingdale next door and it's just dead flat. I mean, it's, there's, there's almost no – I mean, Metro's got the six holes, the only hole that's got any undulation on it at all. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the, you know, it's not like the sandbelt lands all all great or all undulating. Or you know, it's, if, if you played Royal Melbourne and didn't play any other sandbelt golf course, you, you would you wouldn't get a an, an accurate rep, uh, representation of what it's all like. I mean, Kingston Heath. People think Kingston Heath flat, and it kind of is, but they used what undulation there was there really well. But Royal Melbourne had the pick of it, and Peninsula really. And Peninsula's further down the, the the road but you know it's probably it's a half, it's a 20 and a half hour drive from Royal Melbourne but there's some great undulation on that property as well Peninsula moved from the course that was close by they built their courses in the 60s and uh, you know but but that was a a great piece of sandbelt land as well I mean pr- probably next to Royal Melbourne the next best piece of land on the sandbelt really yeah I mean it's it's not all super dramatic but uh but sandy uh is is kind of the the common thread i suppose so wh- what do you think is the best green on the west course uh it's a well the most famous green is the sixth hole because that was where all of us used to go and congregate to watch pros have nightmares trying to putt down the hill so <laughs> six is a great green but um there's so many amazing greens there two's a beautiful green but sort of a redan is sort of sweeping from high on the right down to the left so it was a when it was a i mean when it was a i mean now it's a driving a seven iron for pros but when it was a you know it was a drive and a swooping kind of three water along line it was a beautiful green three is a you know that's the only green that goes on the west course the fifth green on the east course does the same thing it's high in the front and runs away to the back and it's which is Really difficult at Royal Melbourne because the greens are so hard. If the greens were just normal greens, you could stop the ball without any problem at all. But the greens are so hard that you've got to hit a really good shot to. Otherwise, everything just runs to the back. So three is a great green, but then you can't really run it up because there's a really cool diagonal kind of hollow at the front. So you never see anyone run the ball up onto that green because it just bounces all over the place. I mean, five is a beautiful green. Six is obviously great. Um. There's nothing remotely close to a bad green there. You know, seventeen's a beautiful green. Eighteen, so so it's a great set of greens. But the best green, I mean, the first green's a beautiful green for 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 an opening hole on a flat piece of ground. It's amazing how many times when you played a tournament, you'd always you would somehow always, no matter what you did, finish up with a four footer for a par. Yeah, it was just okay. Yeah, it was just because it was really hard to get the ball close. You you ball it, you'd be thirty foot away, and you'd put it down, and it would go three foot, three or four feet past. And I've hit three good shots. How come I've got this smelly four footer across the hill for a par? But that all <laughs> that almost always happened. So, but, but six is the you know the famous green, and that's uh, brutal to part, and, it, and it's it's dangerous to hit too when the pins on the left. If you go in the front bunker, it's it's a horrendously difficult shot. And if you go on the back bunker, you can't really aim at the hole because it goes back off the front of the green, so you've got to hit it sideways. And so it's um, when Tom Doak flattened a little shell, 
part, you know, the back right corner. He, he touched it a little bit to make it a little more playable, but you know, it, it's um, there aren't many places to put a pin on that sixth green. The greens are fast. I mean, there, there's no doubt, especially when a tournament comes to Royal Melbourne. The greens are the greens are humming. They're super fast, and you know, you, you, we've all seen that you know that list of green speeds in America in 1977 when the fastest green at Oak, was at Oakmont it was 9.8. I'm going to promise you Crockford had greens running at 14 in 1972. <laughs> you know, I mean, they were unbelievably fast. And it was funny. We, I caddied for Lucas Michelle in the, in, the, in the Asian Amateur at Royal Melbourne a few months ago. And there was a woman from the RNA who was starting us in the practice rounds. And she said, make sure to fix your pitch marks. And like Lucas was sort of like that. He said, there are no pitch marks on this golf course. And you almost literally... <laughs> never fix a pitch mark you just, there are no pitch marks in the green just there's that's how hard they are so you know the pitch mark repairers there aren't too many royal melbourne members who run a pitch mark repairer so uh the east course i want to touch on at yeah. least briefly here it gets it gets overlooked a lot but everyone i've talked to who has played it was delighted by it just thought it was wonderful yeah what can you tell me about how the how the East Course is similar to the West and, and how it's different? Well, it's the holes on the East Course that are on the composite course are better than the holes that they replace. So, mm-hmm. the, the, and yeah, and the and the composite course that you're referring to, just in case people don't know, is the tournament course at, at Royal Melbourne. Yes. If you've seen a big tournament at Royal Melbourne, they play a uh, a composite of the of the East and West courses, where most of the holes are on the West. I think there are a few different versions of the there are, there are, uh, of of this course. There are a million versions of it, maybe, yeah. uh, but but most of the holes are usually on the West, and along with a few or several from the East. Yeah, there are twelve on the West and six on the East. You play the first and second east. Well, you, you play one, two, three, four. Well, no, you don't, sorry, this composite course is this confusing. The original composite course, you play one, two, three, four, seventeen, eighteen, and they've replaced the fourth hole with the sixteenth hole, the, the the two par threes, which I kind of think okay. the mistake. I, you know, I love. I think the fourth hole is a one of the great uphill path threes in the world. It doesn't look as dramatic as 16, but it's, it's an amazing hole. So you, you play one, two, three, four on the east, on the, and then you go over the road and you play five and six, and then you go over the road again and you play seven to 14. And those holes out the back are quite flat, but really good. You know, it's really good flat golf. There's some undulation there, but not, not, none of the dramatic stuff much closer to the clubhouse. But still, you know, fantastic golf. And that you, you could easily make the argument that the second best course in Australia is the East Course at Royal Melbourne. Perhaps not after Barnburgle and Kate Wickham were built, but, you know, 20 years ago before the golf got built in Tasmania, you could easily make the argument that the best two courses in Australia were the, the West Course, then the East Course, and then probably Kingston Heath. And, and the East Course is, it's, it's been in the, for what they're worth, it's, in the magazine rankings, it's around five, six, or seven. It's still a top hundred course in the world. And if it was the only course at Royal Melbourne, it would it would you know, it would get a lot more credit than it does. But because the east, you know, because of the west course, and that, that's the course that people want to play. But the east course is brilliant, and it it makes the composite course a better course than the west course. So you could make the argument Royal Melbourne should the rankings should be they should rank the east course, the west course. And probably the composite course. And the composite, you can make a pretty good argument. It's the best golf course in the world. Perhaps not 
Pine Valley, but Pine Valley is not certainly not the ideal course. I mean, Mackenzie would say, "Well, yeah, it's great, but who can play it?" And you know, the bulk of the membership at Royal Melbourne can handle the golf course, but Pine Valley is so difficult they couldn't play that. So it mightn't be the best course in the world, but maybe it's the most ideal course in the world. So you're among those who who thinks that the the composite course is is a better course than the West course flat out. Oh yeah, yeah, it's clearly better. But because because Russell's holes on the on the East course that they play are better than the holes that you know they're they're better than that they replace eight eight nine and thirteen to sixteen on the West course, which are all which are really good holes. But you know Russell's holes are brilliant holes. Yeah, they're great. So and yeah, eighteen which eighteen East which comes around the other side of the in fact it shares the fairway with the first West course up by the green. It's a dead flat dog leg left with a clump of tea tree on the corner and a hundred yard wide fairway that goes all the way to the clubhouse and an amazing green. It's one of the great holes at Royal Melbourne. You know, it's a brilliant hole, you know, and, and, and it's dead flat. It, it, it's just, you know, it's back on the land around the clubhouse, but it's a, an amazing dog leg left par four where so many kind of that crazy finish to the Asian amateur when the pin in the front, right? No one had birdied it all day. And then the, Two kids in the playoff both birdied in the first hole of the playoff, which was completely mad. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's a great hole. So uh, the East Course, obviously a, a Russell course. Yeah, you know, can you can you see Russell making an effort to emulate the West Course in in this design? And can you also see some places where he's trying to distinguish the East Course from the West Course? Because I mean, there there are different schools of thought about how you go about designing the second 18 yeah. of a 36 hole facility. You can go the direction of saying we want something really different and really distinct and that has its own very clear identity. Or you can say, we want, we want some kind of, uh, you know, similarities. We want, we want a, a continuity is the word I'm looking for between the courses. What, what approach do you think Russell took here on the East course? Uh, continuity. Yeah, you know, he, he was the bunkers look the same. The greens are perhaps there are some different greens out there, but they don't. They aren't sort of you know, you don't walk on the eleventh green at the East Course and say, "Well, this was clearly not a Mackenzie green because it was clearly, you know the, the concepts were the same and it was a it's a really cool green." But there's nothing like it on the on the West Course, but it fits in beautifully and it's so you know the, the bunkering style is the same. That you know he because the the land is not as expansive, you know, it's not quite as wide and he had to, you know, there's not as much room between the holes on the far paddock on the east course, but, you know, they're, they're very similar courses. So the 13th on the east and the 13th on the west are both sort of short 130 or 40 yard par threes. That are, you know, you could swap them over and you, you, you know, you, you would, neither would look out of place on the other golf course. And it kind of, you know, in a way, it, I mean, the the, cons, the the composite course wasn't built, wasn't arranged until the World Cup in what was it? It was the Canada Cup then in 1959. That was why they put it together. But you know, you, you play the holes around the clubhouse on the east course or on the on, on the clubhouse paddock on the east course, and there, you know, you, you would never know you're on a different golf course. You come off the the old composite course, you came off the fourth west and went to the third east, and you know, any anyone who played that composite course who'd never been there before wouldn't have any idea they were playing a different golf course. You know, the, the, it just looked exactly the same. Yeah, it, it's amazing that it flows so well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then furthermore, a similar point is that, as you mentioned earlier, there are a couple of holes on the West course and I'm sure on the East course as well 
that aren't original that that were changed later greens were moved or you know seventh on the west course i know fits this description and yet i i don't know i mean i've i've looked at all the holes at at royal melbourne through pictures and 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 on tv a number of times i I think i know them fairly well if you had asked me to pick out the hole that wasn't an original mckenzie hole i I wouldn't be able to do it it all it all fits in pretty well the course is so well presented and so well uh stewarded that just it's all you know it's a complete thing yeah yeah, like you know, Crockford moved that twelfth green, and I assume. Well, I think he, I mean it's a great hole, so I think he, you know, he, he probably made it a better hole than it was. And you don't know. I mean, I assume Russell was around at the time, so obviously they, you assume they spoke about it, and you know, they probably had a committee meeting and said, I guess he said, I want to move the twelfth green. That was well, that's a good idea. Okay, we'll do that. And so that happened, but you know, that green's you don't, you know, that's indistinguishable from you know, it's not like that green stands out as. Um, something different or something, you know. I mean, Gil, the, the first time Gil Hans came down to Australia, funny story, he won the Olympic job. And he ran me up and said, I've, you know, I've got this job to build the Olympic course in Rio and I've, and I've, and I've sold it to the whoever he was selling it to on the basis of Kingston Heath. He said, I suppose I should come down and see it because he'd never been to the sandbelt. So we were talking about the, the 12th Grand of Victoria which was, you know, he, he'd never, never been to Australia. We started walking Victoria. So we walked, ten, we, walked we started on the 10th hole. It was late in, the, it was kind of you know, six o'clock at night in the summer. And we walked 10, walked 11. So he's never been to Australia, never seen a sandbelt course. He's seen two greens. And he, he got 100 yards from the 12th green and said, that green's not an original green, is it? Like, you can see that. You know, I mean, I knew it wasn't original, but he, you know, it was, I thought it was amazing. He said the hardest thing to do is build one green on a golf course and have it fit with the other 17, which was the genius of the 12th green at Royal Melbourne is no one would know that that's not an original green. So, you know, clearly once Mackenzie had gone, he'd, he'd, you know, there were people who were talented enough to change some of his work and have it fit in perfectly well, which is what the seventh hole does, a par three. It's a great par three. And, and no one who went there would ever know that, you know, this wasn't, you know, Mackenzie never even saw this hole. So the changes have been small, but really well done there. Yeah. And, and not many greenkeepers over the years either, right? The, the, the lineage of greenkeepers at Royal Melbourne, there, there were some really long tenured people who took care of the course and, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part of the reason that it, that it's been preserved so well and that it, that it still feels so you know complete. It's not like a hodgepodge. There yeah. weren't, a bunch of different voices at different times coming in and making changes. There was again that word continuity. Morgan was there for until I think the thirties. I think Crockford, Claude Crockford, started there in the mid thirties, I think. And he was there. I mean, I, I can, um, you know, he, he was around when I was around. You know, he, he was setting up Thomas, and I was. I think he did a couple of Australian Opens and PJs I played in, but yeah, in fact, he did. So, so I mean, he was there until the mid eighties. And you know they have, they've had a few since then, and Richard Forsyth, he, he's Richard's been there fifteen years now, twelve or fifteen years, but they've, they've all been you know great at preserving you know the golf course. I mean, the, Peter Williams changed over the grass to Pencross in the late eighties, and Jim Porter came along after that, and he said that as we were putting in the last Pencross green, we were trying to figure out what we what we were going to replace it with, so. 
Richard eventually took it back to you know a grass that's much closer to, to the original grass. So that was probably a mistake, ch- changing the grass over on the greens. But they don't make too many changes, uh, uh, mistakes. And, and Crockford was such a respected kind of greenkeeper that the committee, you assume, largely stayed out of his road. You know, you know, they, you know, they understood the course was great and he looked after it well and it was, why would you want to be, interfere or change anything? And, and that was the way it rolled for a long time there. And it still does, really. I mean, Doug's still the consulting architect and, he, you know, he's, you know, largely it's leave it alone. Because Martin Hawtrey made some change. He, he got the job there as the architect there in the, uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago. And he, there were some boundary issues on the East Coast that he, that he, Change, kind of solved in a way. You know, he dug up Russell's sixth hole on the east course and changed it, and Doak redid it, and it's still kind of it's not as good as the old, the old hole. But they solved the boundary problem at seven and seventeen. That's you know the, the holes with, with roads on the right, which is one thing Russell did. It was funny Russell every course he did in Australia, the boundaries are all on the right, whether it's a coincidence or whether he was. A hooker, you know, I don't know, or, or whatever. But all all the boundary all the boundary problems there are on Russell's courses, and, and every course in Australia has got boundary problems because they're all in the suburbs. Um, every boundary problem, of course, that Russell is, it's always on the right, which is kind of weird. But um, huh. you know, so Hawtrey changed a few things around, and then Doak came back and kind of, for want of a better word, fixed what Hawtrey had done. Um, and it all, you know, it all fits together pretty well, really. So I'm curious, since you've seen so much golf mm-hmm. at Royal Melbourne, I mean, you've played a lot of golf there yeah. there as well, uh, but, but you've seen a lot of tournaments there, including fairly recently. Does a particular round come to mind as the best you've ever seen someone play at Royal Melbourne? Somebody who just like, unlocked the course and really for for 18 holes really had mastery of it i played the day only shot 60 so i guess that was pretty good <laughs> um he was he was pretty good at golf yeah i mean watching sevy i've watched sevy play pretty much every hole of the 78 pga and that was beautiful to watch because that was mckenzie built that course for i mean mckenzie loved the way hagen played golf and that was the sort of, you know, he wanted players to have room and space. He didn't like, you know, tight, constricted golf. So, and he, then he loved Hagen, loved the way he played. So he was designing for Hagen in a way. And Sevy was Hagen. You know, he came, you know, 40, 50 years later, he, he comes, you know, here's a guy who needs some space to show how creative he is. But that was Sevy at his best. So watching Sevy play was amazing. And so I would say the best golf I, I've seen there was, Savvy and Lydia Ko. Lydia Ko won the Women's Open there by, I don't know, seven shots. And it was just genius stuff. I mean, she took that place apart. It was amazing how well she played. She, she'd figured out the angles. And people say angles don't matter. You know, Royal Melbourne, they matter because the shot from one side of the fairway can be way easier than the shot from the other side. And she just, it was genius. So she played beautifully and just picked it apart. The, the third on the East Course, which was, I don't, I don't know what number it was because it was there have been so many ridiculous r- routings of the composite course. People just lose track of. So the, so the third on the east, she, the first day, she hit it left off the tee a little bit. It was into the wind, I think. it was. She had, you know, un- un- unusually for that hole, she had quite a long second shot. 
down the hill to a back right pin and she'd cut this hybrid thing into about six or eight feet. And the next day she'd hold a nine iron on the same hole. It was like, it was, she just, and she won by seven shots. It was just, she made, and you know, Stacey Lewis was, was, is a famous, not famous quote, but she said, you know, Royal Melbourne doesn't re- um, reward good shots. And she was right. It rewards great shots. And, you know, whilst the rest of the field were complaining about how difficult the course was, Lydia was just putting a clinic on. So, you know, in terms of two, not specific rounds, but two tournaments played, that was amazing. And I saw Hale Irwin play the last six holes in 1978 when he shot 64 in, I think, the first round. And I, you know, I watched him play from the top of the hill on the fourth west, which was the 14th hole. And he just hit, you know, he had a string of amazing shots from there to the finish, just like flushed it. It was when I, that was the first time I saw someone play golf that was like, my God, that's, inc- that's, I, I didn't know anyone could play golf that well. You know, Hale um, Irwin. Hale Irwin, it was, he just flushed it from the top of the hill. It was a two on, and he had a beautifully, a great shot into the, the hole, the hole where Lydia could hold the nine on. That was the next hole. He had a beautiful seven on in there. Then the par three up the hill, the fourth, he had a beautiful shot in there and just, I mean, he shot 64. It was obviously, and he won the tournament, but yeah, yeah that was, that was kind of memorable. Yeah. The, the long clubs off the fairway, Hale Irwin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. He was, With he a was two a, iron and a fairway wood. Yeah. He was a, you know, you could see him hit that. Well, it was four years earlier. He hit that two under the last hole at Wingfoot to win the US Open. You know, yeah. and it was like, right. You know, yeah. when, when you see it in person, it's like, wow, that guy can really hit it. And, and, right. the, and the other great, the other great round, of course, was, um, I watched Tiger play Abraham Answer in the singles <laughs> in the President's Cup, and that was um, that was he he yeah. was clearly the best player there that week. It was you know 2019. It was just it was you know that's why you want that's why pro golf is better when it's on proper golf courses because it brings out the genius and the best players. And that was you know that was a again it was you know, it, it was Mackenzie designing for Tiger. It was a perfect golf course for Tiger Woods it was you had to think about where you were going to hit it you know and you had to hit it there you had to control the uh, Elvis you know I, I caved for Elvis Smiley in the New Zealand Open the start of last year and we're out with Steve Williams the last day and Elvis asked Steve you know what, what was your favorite tournament to caddy and he said Augusta because you know most courses you've got four or five yards to play with but Augusta you've got one yard and that might have been an exaggeration, but not by much. And Royal Melbourne, you've got, you know, some holes you've got one or two yards to play with. And you've, you know, and which was goes back to the Stacey Lewis point was, you know, it doesn't reward good shots. No, you've got a yard to play with. And if you, and if you miss that yard or two yards by, by three yards, instead of being eight feet away, you can be 40 feet away. And you think you've hit yeah. a good shot and you're 40 feet away, but no, you missed it by two yards. Not good enough. You know, which is why which is why it's such a genius golf course and why it still holds up in in tournaments and why there aren't so many crazy rounds because it's so difficult to get the ball near the hole, especially when it's windy, because the little undulations in the greens and you you, the, the, you get the wrong you hit the wrong shape and get the wrong bounce and get on the wrong side of the slope, and a shot that on most courses in the world would be fifteen or twenty feet away, so it's fifty feet away, and now you've got a three putt, or or you're going to struggle to two putt. So that's its genius, really. So when you see someone like Tiger or Seve or Lydia Ko play that or Hale Owen play that course well, it's brilliant to watch. And it's memorable. I can I can still see those shots Irwin hit and Seve hit and Lydia hit. You can still see them, how, how why they were so. 
Lydia played the 18th on the west course with Charlie Holt. And the pin was in the front right corner, dog leg right, and she hit it down the tree line over the bunker into the right half of the fairway, the right corner of the fairway. And Charlie hit a three wood into the middle of the fairway. But now she's back with a five iron into the green off the right to left slope to a right pin with the wind off the right. And she hit a, you know, a decent shot, but it was 40 foot left of the hole. But Lydia was 30 yards closer down with a better angle and she hit it in under the hole with an eight iron sort of 12, 15 feet away. Charlie putted it down six foot short because it was a really fast putt. Lydia missed. Charlie missed. Charlie made five and I'm sure she walked off the green thinking, I didn't hit a bad shot there and I made five. Well, you didn't hit a bad shot, but you didn't really ever have it in the same position Lydia had it in. And Lydia made an easy, a really easy four. And Charlie was middle of the fellow, middle of the green, but but walked off with a five, kind of presumably like, I didn't do much wrong there. But, but there aren't many holes in the world where she'd have made a bogey off the two shots she hit, but she did because neither of them were, she didn't take on what Lydia took on. Was Lydia a teenager at the time? It was pre Ledbetter's A swing, which was why it was a right. like. Why do you want to take this? You know, why do you want to change this game? You, you're, it's a you're work of art. Best, you're already the best I player mean, in the world. So one most beautiful player to watch. Yeah, when when she was a teenager, I mean, it was just perfect. Yeah, um, it was, and, yeah. and yeah, I mean, you know, the size of the margin that you're talking about, the size of a margin between being screwed and being in a good position is often what people key in on when they talk about unfairness, right? Yeah. If the margin is if the margin is too small between being okay and, and being screwed, then then people will say that's unfair. You can't possibly expect me to be that accurate. No yeah. one can be that accurate. But then you get players like Lydia Ko as a teenager or Tiger Woods at the 2019 yeah. President's Cup or or Haler when hitting a, a long iron. Yeah. I mean those those that is the elite of the elite and they can play with those margins. Yeah. Which is what, you know, Tom Doak told me once he said I don't want to distinguish between a two handicapper and a scratch or a five handicapper and a scratch player. I want to distinguish between a scratch player, the best player in the club and the best player in the world. And that's what Mackenzie did so brilliantly at Royal Melbourne. St Andrews does that. And he, and he understood St. Andrews, you know, to hit a great shot into the road hole. You don't see many guys stiffing it on the road hole. But, you know, if someone, I remember David Graham hit a great shot into the 17th hole at, at St. Andrews in a Dunhill Cup. He drew this five one around the back of the bunker to about, I don't know what, three, I can't remember, close, really close. It was an amazing shot. So you had to hit, you know, you, you, did, you had nothing to play with and you had to hit the perfect shot. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't as severe as, Augusta, as 15 in Augusta when you come back in the water if you're two yards out. But you you can be fifty feet away, off what you think's a good shot. Well, it's you know it's, it was it wasn't a bad shot by any means, but it was wasn't perfect. But then you watch these people play it who play it perfectly, and you go, well, you can play it. It's playable. And and a, and a hundred years later, it's still you know its genius still comes out because Tiger Woods can play the thing that Mackenzie built and still show off his genius and still show off why he was the best player that week of the Presidents Cup when he wasn't. You know, if you played a regular tour event, Tiger was past his best by 2019. I mean, he won the Masters, but he was he was 10 years past his best golf probably. But you put him on Royal Melbourne, and he's the best player here. And if Mackenzie yeah. had been there and seen that, he would have said, see, I told you. you know, that, right. that's, why, that's why the course I did was really good because I found out who the best player was. And 100 years yeah. later, he was still... It, it, who the best mind was. was. Yeah. 
his uh, tiger's mind was at its at its peak yeah. his, his body may not have been at its yeah. peak but yeah. you know yeah that is that is a, a true testament of <laughs> of a great course there all right well mike i've taken enough of your time you need to go play some golf at, at barn Boogle. that's far more important than talking to me but no, thank no, you so no, much no. for yeah, spending you. some time with me no, yeah it. it's been it a pleasure it was it was great fun. It's always fun to talk about Royal Melbourne, and it's always. And I played there on New Year's Day, and it's like it, for me, it's as much fun playing there now as it was 50 years ago. There are many courses like that. All right, thank you, Mike. Thanks, mate. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One thing that I would recommend that you do, if you enjoyed this episode, if you like these deep dives into golf architecture, I think you would love what we're doing in Club TFE. Club TFE is our membership. It costs $120 a year. And there are a number of things that that come with it aside from golf architecture content. So you get an ongoing discount in the pro shop. You get early access to Friday golf events. Um, We have all sorts of stuff going on but but one of the big things is weekly content on golf architecture there's a design notebook series where we talk about what's going on right now in the world of golf architecture and there are our weekly course profiles we've got ones coming up on the beverly country club in chicago as well as one that i will start writing as soon as i get off the mic here about bandon trails and these are in-depth analyses of golf courses with uh, beautiful imagery photos that we've gotten at these courses as well as illustrations by Cameron Hurtis and Matt Rusius. We're really proud of what we're doing here um, and what we're providing our members. So if you're interested in that, if you like this episode, you like golf architecture, this is a great experience for you. So that's Club TFE. Go to thefriedegg.com slash membership to see what it's all about. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon. Thank you.